0: verse 17 and 18 say for therein is the rights of god revealed from faith to faith that is written the just shall live by faith for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness let's pray father we thank you today that we can come together once again around your word we thank you father god for this precious book this divine revelation that's given unto us we thank you father god that we can trust it we can depend upon it that we can read it knowing that father what's written is truth father we pray that you'd guide now as we once again open up your word that you would give us understanding father god you would bless us through your word challenge us by your word I that you give me wisdom from on high as I presented today, that I might say that which you would have in the same. I would glorify you, Father God, through the preaching of your word today. I will be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Trials of notorious criminals are found in headlines of the newspapers or in the radio or on the TV almost every day. And young people indifferently scan these dramatic accounts of these criminals each day. But the most important trial in human history has gone unnoticed by many, for many years. And that's the trial of you and me. The trial of all mankind. And that trial is recorded for us in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, here before us. Paul in introducing this section could have used the awesome words Hear ye, hear ye, or rise. The court is in session. Because Romans chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 are the doors that lead us into God's courtroom. And as we enter God's courtroom, as in any courtroom, there are certain characters involved in the events. Involved in making the decisions and handling the evidence and handing down the verdict in the court. In the courtroom we have the judge who must know the law and he must be just. The prosecution tries to prove the defendant guilty. There's the defense who endeavors to prove the defendant's innocence. There's the witnesses for the prosecution and the defense. And of course there is the defendant The one who was on trial. And as we enter God's courtroom, we see each of these characters before us in these three chapters of the book of Romans. Starting today, we'll take time over the next weeks as we look at Romans chapter 1 through 3, probably months, it's probably the truth of the matter. We'll look at each of these characters, starting this morning with a description of the judge. He was none other than God himself, the righteous judge, who sits upon the bench in judgment of mankind. God, the righteous judge. And I want you to notice me, first of all, this morning, his righteousness revealed in verse 17. For there is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, don't worry. I know we looked at verse 17 last week. We're not going to repeat what I preached last week. But we should note some other things in reference to verse 17. When we're talking about the righteousness of God revealed, the righteousness of the judge revealed, we want to consider the fact that Romans has a theme of the righteousness of God. If you were to give a theme to the book of Romans, it would be God's righteousness. And the word righteousness and similar words, words that are from the Greek has, have a similar meaning, occur 60 times in the book of Romans. It's a major theme of the book and now as man stands before a holy god he stands condemned because of the righteousness of god he is holy and he demands punishment isn't that what romans 6 23 says for the wage of sin is death there is a consequence to the unrighteousness of men and yet at the same time his love demands forgiveness as Romans chapter five and verse eight tells us, but God commanded His love towards us in the while we had sinners, Christ died for us. And here lies the problem of the book. The book of Romans is trying to explain to you and I. It's the problem that the book deals with for us. How can a holy God ever forgive sinners, and at the same time still remain holy? How can a holy God forgive sinners? and remain holy. That really is the conundrum that the book of Romans tries to explain to us that unravels for us to demonstrate to us that we do have a holy God and we do have sinful men and how God managed to reconcile the two and still remain holy. So he is just and he is also the justifier of those that believe. You know, if man is to be acquitted, the court must prove either that man has perfect righteousness acceptable to God or that man has lived a sinless life. You see, God's righteousness revealed to us that you and I might understand the standard by which God's going to judge us. And the reality is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not matched up to the standard. But if in this courtroom you and I are going to be acquitted by Almighty God, then what needs to happen is that the defense needs to prove either that you and I have a perfect righteousness acceptable to God or that you and I have never sinned. This is where the righteousness of God comes in. Because God's righteousness reveals to you and I that we are sinners, but at the same time the righteousness of god is revealed to you and i in the gospel message that paul is preaching verse 17 for therein and of course that's back to verse 16 for i'm not ashamed of the gospel of christ for therein in this gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith is written the just shall live by faith god's righteousness is revealed in the gospel God has revealed the kind of righteousness that you and I need for salvation. So, as we enter the courtroom with our defense lawyer, so to speak, we already know the standard by which we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged by the righteousness of God. That's the standard. His righteousness is the standard by which we'll be judged. And if you and I have not got the righteousness that matches his righteousness, then you and I are condemned. That's the problem that we face. Simply put, if you and I are going to be acquitted, then we need to be set free on the basis of matching the righteousness of God. Now, the only way that's going to happen is if you and I are able to receive the righteousness of God via somebody else because you and I are not righteous. Isn't that what Isaiah 63 tells us? All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So if we're going to be acquitted, we're going to have to be acquitted on the basis of righteousness of somebody else. And as we saw last week, that righteousness of God is found in Christ Jesus. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ, imputed righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that you and I receive if we're going to be acquitted. When we're saved, we're justified. When we're saved, we're declared righteous. Now, righteousness here in verse 17, as we saw last week, simply means right standing before God. And if you and I are going to be accepted of God, then you and I, according to Romans, need to have a righteousness that is acceptable to God, and that righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. We're going to be acquitted, We need that kind of righteousness. Now to that end, the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, not only in the gospel, it's revealed in the death of Christ. You see, God has shown us what's required in order that you and I might indeed stand in the righteousness that God requires. God has shown us that sin must be punished that the wage of sin is death. And either you and I have to pay that price, we have to die without God and spend eternity in hell, or somebody has to die in our place so that you and I might experience the forgiveness of God and stand in somebody else's righteousness. But the cross demonstrates to you and I the righteousness of God. But God had a righteous demand and need to be satisfied. Is that what John, 1 John 2, 2 tells us? He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, not only for the sins of the whole world. God's righteousness needed to be satisfied in order that you and I could be saved. And God's righteousness is not only revealed in the gospel and revealed in the death of Christ, but God's righteousness is also revealed in the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection is proof that God was satisfied. The wage of sin is death. Christ died. How do we know that his sacrifice was sufficient? He rose again. The resurrection demonstrates to us that the sacrifice Christ made to pay the price of death for our sin was sufficient for our sins. God is shown to be righteous because he has provided salvation for all men as his love demanded and his son died as his righteousness demanded it. The way that God can be just and the justifier is he remains just because he punished sin and he can justify us because Christ died in our place. The righteousness of God is revealed. We see that we have a righteous judge, a righteous God, who sends on the bench to judge you and I and demands that you and I must have righteousness that matches his righteousness in order for you and I to be acquitted. And the only way that can happen is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ demonstrates that God was satisfied with his payment. And now you and I can be justified and God can remain just cause of what happened at calvary we cannot be saved we cannot be acquitted unless we have the righteousness of christ but praise god you and i can have the imputed righteousness of christ at salvation and that's why paul is not ashamed of the gospel of christ because it is the power of god unto salvation to everyone that believeth we can receive the righteousness of God and be justified and God remain just because of Calvary. See, we need to understand that God is more than a God of love. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 explains to us more about this whole idea of of who our judge is. You see, not only is his righteousness revealed in verse 17... But the wrath of God is revealed in verse 18. God is righteous. God is holy. And that is revealed to us in the gospel. But so too is the wrath of God revealed to us. It's a chilling thought, isn't it? A God of wrath. We all love to think about the God of love. We, we love to know that God loves us. We love to know that we have a God who is a God of love, that his very nature is love. But we cannot escape the fact that he is also a God of wrath. Now, the liberals would love to lull you and I into a false security. And they will tell us that God is just a God of love. He couldn't send anyone to hell. Well, it's true that God is not willing that any should perish. For 2 Peter 3 9 tells us that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's true God does not want anyone to go to hell. In fact, hell was created for the devil and his angels. He was never created for mankind. God does not want you and I to be separated from him. But by the same token, you know, I need to remember that he is holy. And because God is holy, sin must be punished. You see, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Not only is the righteousness of God revealed, He is the standard by which we must uh, be uh, be able to match if we're going to be forgiven of God. And the reason why we need to match His standard of righteousness is because God is a God of wrath. He must deal with sin. God would no longer be God if sin went unnoticed, unjudged, and unpunished. Go with me to Ecclesiastes, please. Ecclesiastes and verse twelve chapter twelve, please. Ecclesiastes chapter twelve. <clears throat> and verse thirteen and fourteen. So let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God will bring every work into judgment. Go to Matthew chapter 12, please. Matthew chapter 12. And verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak They shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. There is judgment coming. God must punish sin. It's fine to preach the love of God. It's fine to preach the God of love. But it must be balanced with the wrath of God. Now, the word wrath here in verse 18 means God's personal emotion of sin. If you and I want to know what God thinks about sin, then we need to understand that God hates sin. That's what wrath is all about. It's God's personal emotion towards sin. Go with me to Matthew 27, please. Matthew 27. And verse 45. Matthew 27. Verse 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lanak Sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If we want to know how much God hates sin, and when Jesus Christ is on the cross of Calvary, and he becomes sin for us, Christ cries out, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father turns his back upon God the Son because God cannot look upon sin. You know you understand that we have a God of wrath. God is not only a God of love, God is a God of holiness, God is a God of justice. And because God is holy, because God is righteous, then he must deal with sin because sin is against his very character. He must judge sinners because God hates sin. You know, when you and I say the word wrath, we often think, it makes us think of an arbitrary outburst of temper. If someone... It shows wrath. We think of somebody who gets angry and it's, a, it's just an emotional outburst, you know, that they, they lost it. They, they, they flipped the lid, you know, they went for it and they just broke loose. But when we speak of the wrath of God, that's not what it means. The wrath of God is God's holy aversion to all that is evil. Everything that is contrary to his righteousness is sin. And God hates sin. He hates everything that is contrary to his character. God is a righteous and a holy God. And everything that is contrary to his righteousness and his holiness is sin. And therefore God has this aversion to it. He hates wickedness. It might be compared to the wrath of the judge or the wrath of the law. You know, if a man murders another, then the wrath of the law will be revealed against him. He will face the full force of the law because of his behavior. He'll be punished for his crime. And if God is to be just, if God is to remain holy, and at the same time give eternal life to mankind... He must punish sin. So Christ had to die for you and I at Calvary. Sin had to be dealt with somewhere, somehow. God could not justify you and I without first and foremost His his holiness and righteousness being satisfied By somebody dying for sin. For the wages of sin is death. You remember that's what he told Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat. For the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The consequence for disobedience is death. And the only saving grace from Adam and Eve were those animals that were slain and they were clothed in the skins of those animals as a picture of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Somebody has to die for man's sins because God is a righteous God and God is a God of wrath and he cannot overlook sin if his righteousness is to be satisfied. So Christ had to die on Calvary. and that's what Paul is motivated by in Romans chapter one and verse 16. He's not ashamed of the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God under salvation to everyone that believeth. You see, the thing that motivates the Apostle Paul to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fact that it's the only means of salvation. It's the only power to save. The power of God and salvation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And without that, there would be no salvation because God is righteous and just. The only way that salvation is possible is God's way. Christ is the only one who can meet the righteous demands of a holy God. Now notice what says in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The word reveal there means to uncover, to bring to light, to make known. Either by direct communication or in some other way. Now why did the why did the wrath of God need to be revealed from heaven? Because unless God reveals his attitude towards sin, you and I would never know what God thought about sin. And so God has to reveal to you and I his dislike of sin. And that wrath is revealed in at least two ways. The wrath of God is revealed to us, first of all, in the word of God. John three thirty-six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. God's word reveals to you and I the wrath of God. We see it evidenced throughout the Old Testament in particular. And we have uh, the books of the Old Testament are given to you and I that you and I might understand The character and the nature of God. And one of the things we need to understand about God from the Old Testament is that God is a God of wrath, that God hates sin and wickedness. Throughout the Bible, the wrath of God is revealed alongside his love. We do see the love of God revealed to us, but alongside that is the wrath of God. There's many who would love to omit the wrath of God from the equation. In fact, there's many who won't preach in the Old Testament because it reveals too much about the wrath of God. And they'd love to get rid of the wrath of God and keep the love of God, but these two attributes are inseparable. You and I are not going to fully understand the love of God if you and I don't understand the wrath of God. You see, the wrath of God is what what really shines a spotlight on the love of God, doesn't it? It makes God's love so much greater, so much more uh, amazing that God would love sinners like you and I when we understand his hatred of sin, that this is the very nature of God is this repulsion of sin that God therefore wants to condemn sin and must condemn sinners but in the same token he sent his son from heaven's glory to die on the cross of Calvary and he poured all of his wrath upon his son because he loved you and I. That should cause you and I to say wow. But you know that doesn't have great Purpose and meaning, if you don't understand the wrath of God, if you know that God hates sin, it just makes the sacrifice of Christ so much greater and the love of God is something amazingly wonderful. The wrath of God is also revealed in the cross of Christ. In fact, there is no greater revelation of the wrath of God than the cross of Calvary. Now, you and I love to look at the cross and see it as a picture of love, don't we? Because that's what it is to us, isn't it? We look at Calvary and we see Jesus Christ dying for us because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish with everlasting life. It's a symbol of the love of God, the sacrifice of our Savior for us, and it rightly is that it's also a symbol of the wrath of God because on that cross God's wrath was poured out upon his son and that's why when he hangs on that cross in Matthew 27 and verse 46 he says my God my God why hast thou forsaken me because it is the place where God's wrath is demonstrated for all God's Wrath against sin cost the life of his own beloved son. cross is a picture of the wrath of God. You know, the cross is the place where the righteousness of God is revealed. It's also the place where the wrath of God is revealed. Now, something in the English here is not apparent that it is... Apparent in the Greek, with this word "revealed" in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The word "revealed" here is in what's called the present tense, and it could be translated this way: the word of God has been revealed continuously. Sorry, the wrath of God has been revealed continuously. This is seen in the cross. Because although it occurred 1,900 plus years ago, 2,000 years ago, it continues to stand as a great witness of the wrath of God. Every time we think about Calvary, we think about the sacrifice that had been made to save us from our sins. Every time we think about Calvary, we ought to think about those words of Christ upon the cross, including, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the wrath of God has been revealed continuously upon those that break the laws of God in nature every day, every week. It's a standing revelation. This, this wrath of God, you and I have it displayed before us continuously so that we understand the importance of it, we understand the, the depth of it, we understand the, 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 the need for man to, be, uh, to pay for his sin, either for himself or somebody dying in his place. It's displayed to us. Every time we think of it, the Lord's table reminds us of the sacrifice it took to save us wrath of God is revealed to us and Paul goes on to sum up in two words human sin placing two great divisions ungodliness in verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men ungodliness is sin against the being of God and unrighteousness is the sin against the will of God You see, man is not only a moral sinner, he's unrighteous, but man is a religious sinner, he's ungodly. It's a relationship between these two things. What's been trying to express to you and I, and will indeed unfold in these three chapters, is that man is guilty of sin, irrespective of what he may think. You see, a man may be perfect in respect to man. He may never break a law of man. But he'd still be guilty before a holy God because he's ungodly. You see, man is unrighteous and we know that. There's non-righteous, no, not one none of us can claim no human being can claim to be righteous that has never broken the law of God has never ever uh, uh, broken the law of man for that matter we're all guilty of that drive down the road and do you know 80 kilometers an hour in a 70 zone and we've broken the law we're sinners we don't look at it that way usually but that's exactly what we are we broke the law But even if you and I could live a life that was totally free from breaking any law of God or man, we'd still be guilty because we're ungodly. All men are guilty before God and in danger of the judgment because of their disobedience. And only Jesus Christ can save. For we need his righteousness to deliver us from the wrath to come. Acts 4.12 says neither is this salvation any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says I am the way the truth the life no man come to the Father but by me there is only one way in which you and I can satisfy the righteous demands of God and that's to accept the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Not only do we see the righteousness of God revealed and the wrath of God revealed but thirdly with regard to the character of God, because of his righteousness and his wrath, we see his judgments revealed. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word hold means to hold down or suppress. Paul says that all men know the truth about God But they have denied the truth. They hold it down. They suppress it. So that they might live in unrighteousness. They hold down the truth in unrighteousness. The man knows the truth. But they hold it down. They suppress it. So that they might live their own lives in unrighteousness. The result of that is explained in the following verses. Look at verse 19. But that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but because, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, and to birds and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. Verse 25. Who change the truth of God to a lie, and worship and serve the crea- creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever? You see, mankind knows the truth because God has revealed it to them. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. As man looks at creation, man can see God. Everything in creation reveals the hand of Almighty God. Now man has chosen to suppress that and to believe a lie called evolution and worship the creature rather than the Creator, and that's getting worse. But man, God has said, I've made myself known. You can know me. me. You can know my, uh, understand my eternal power, and my Godhead. If you'd only open your eyes, you can see it. But you've chosen to suppress it. So much so that you've changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped to serve the creature more than the creator. That's the reality of man. For this reason, God will punish all who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Judgment will fall upon all who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We have a righteous God, who in his righteousness stands and he must judge sin Because God is a God of wrath, and that wrath must be poured against iniquity. For God to remain to be God, he must deal with sin. And therefore, man will be judged, because man has suppressed the truth about God, and and doesn't want to believe in him. But the righteous God said, what I've done is I've sent my son, he's died in your place, he became the place of the wrath of God, so that you might indeed have the righteousness that satisfies my righteous demands. But because you rejected him, you will be judged. Because you hold the truth down in unrighteousness. You won't believe. Man has turned his back upon God. God didn't turn his back upon man. And one day God will judge. And this punishment will be just. For God is a just God. Look in Psalm 50 please. Psalm 50. Psalm 50 and verse 6. And the heaven shall declare his righteousness for God is judge uh, for God is judge himself heavens declare the righteousness of god god is just and god will always judge righteously and he will punish according to his justice look in psalm 9 psalm 9 and verse 7 and 8 but the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. God will punish according to justice. Romans 2.2 says this, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another thou condemnest thyself, for thou art that judgest, doest the same things we're told here that God cannot be unfair or unjust and since all sin we will all be punished justly in fact the greatest sin will receive the greatest punishment so what is the greatest sin Well, it's not murder, it's not adultery, it's not cursing, it's not lying, it's not stealing. It's not covetousness, it's not wife-beating, it's not witchcraft, it's not idolatry. You can list the sins. That's not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. The greatest sin is the sin of unbelief. John chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us that very truth. John 3.18 where we read he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the, in the name of the only begotten son of God look also in John chapter 16 John chapter 16 and verse 9 verse 8 says that talking about the spirit of God God, it says, and when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment of sin, because they believe not. Believe not, and they're condemned. He says, man stands before this righteous judge the only sin that man needs to have committed to go to hell is the rejection of Jesus Christ, to reject God's means of giving to man the righteousness that man requires to satisfy the holy God. I find that remarkable. I find that wonderful. God says, the reason you're condemned to hell is because you rejected my son. And I sent you, my son, so that you could stand in this courtroom today and be acquitted, be declared righteous, if you'd only believed on Christ. What an amazing God, don't we? God says, I'm righteous. And because of my wrath, I must judge sin. And judgment will fall upon sinners. But in order that you understand how much I love you, I'm actually going to do something for you as judge. I'm going to send my son to die in your place, and his righteousness will be acceptable to me if you'll only believe. What a glorious God we have. Man stands before the righteous judge. The holy reason why he is condemned is because he rejected Jesus Christ. God has revealed to you and I his righteousness. He's revealed to you and I his wrath. He's revealed to you and I his judgment. But you know he's also revealed to you and I salvation. Verse Titus 2.11 tells us, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And that's why man is without excuse. If man rejects Jesus Christ and his righteousness, then man will be condemned. But if man will accept Jesus Christ and his righteousness, man will be acquitted. He'll be declared righteous before a holy God. Beloved, today we can praise the Lord that we have a righteous judge that in love he sent his son to die upon the cross of Calvary to provide the righteousness required to have eternal life so that you and I can escape the judgment to come. Reject God's offer and suffer at the hands of the wrath of God. And it's a fearful thing, according to Hebrews 10.31, to fall into the hands of of a righteous God. But accept Christ and we will enjoy the benefits of salvation for eternity. Now we're going to continue to look at the characters assembled in God's courtroom over these few chapters and it is a remarkable three chapters of the book of Romans as God reveals to you and I scene. seen like none other in the courtroom of almighty God. We're going to see the characters involved. We're going to see the defense who's not very good at his job. We're going to see the prosecution who is brilliant at his job. And we're going to see a righteous God who loves us. Let's remember that we serve a God of righteousness, a God of wholeness, and therefore he must punish sin. And he did that at Calvary for all men so that all who believe in him can now stand in his righteousness. Those who reject God's offer of love and salvation must one day face his wrath and judgment. If you're saved today, then we have much to praise God for. We can praise him for Calvary. We can praise him for who he is. We can praise him for his sacrifice. We can praise him for his gift of righteousness to you and I. We can praise him that God was satisfied, that the righteous man's of a holy God was satisfied at Calvary, and that you and I can now stand in that righteousness justified, our sins forgiven, and on our way to heaven. I trust today we will give thanks to God for who he is. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you, Father God, for the testimony of your righteousness and that your righteousness demands that your wrath be satisfied and you must judge sin. Father, we thank you that you chose not to judge it in us, but judge it in your Son. We thank you, Father God, by simple faith in Jesus Christ, we can now stand in his righteousness and be declared to be justified before a holy God. May we leave this place this day with thanksgiving, your glory we pray in jesus name amen we're going to sing in closing hymn number